Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, we're back, folks, with the second half of our review of 2021, the Annus not quite as horribleous as 2020. Um, we're still we're still working on a on a title. Catchy, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome for that. Uh, at the end of part one, we got up to the end of the clay court season with French Open titles for Novak Djokovic and Bob Boric Krajicova. So we're going to start today's episode with the grass court season um, and a win for Matteo Berrettini at Queen's for Ons in Wimbledon not Wimbledon for Ons in Birmingham um, that was her first title wasn't it that was a, a wonderful moment for Ons Jabeur uh, Johanna Conta won what turned out to be her last career title in Nottingham uh, and most notably in terms of pre-Wimbledon action uh, Bianca Andreescu was sung happy birthday by a live band on court in Berlin following her loss to Elise Cornet. Oh, still, um, I can't get through that, that without cringing, just even even listening to you say it. No, it's, it's completely hideous. Poor Bianca Andreescu. Uh, we move on to Wimbledon. Um, where, wow, I mean, we were all back together, weren't we? David was working at Wimbledon. Matt was staying with me. We created Tennis Podcast Towers. David, you came around every evening and we got Deliveroo. And it was it was when you met Billie Jean and that was beautiful. And it was all just, I have nothing but happy memories of that fortnight from a very selfish point of view. This isn't talking about the tennis at all, is it? But um yeah, if you allow me a moment of self-indulgence, it was it was a lovely time for the podcast, mm. I think. Yeah, that, I've got a real fuzzy feeling just hearing that. And, and, and I had not occurred to me that that was the first time I'd met Billie Jean. I feel like I've known her years. <laughs> <laughs> she feels the same. Could we actually just have an interlude here because she is doing something naughty and I need to stop her from doing that. Billie Jean, stop. Stop. Come here. Good girl. Okay, by, by back naughty. in the game. What, what, what do you mean? She's retrieved something from the bin and she's she's playing with it. <laughs> right. Honestly, the money that I've spent on toys over the past 12 months and she's fishing actual garbage out of the bin. 
Um, okay, so Wimbledon in, in terms of the tennis. Um, it was drama right from the word go, wasn't it? We had Serena Williams' retirement against Alexandra Sasnovich um, with an injury that's ended up keeping her out of of tennis. Who knows when she will return? We covered this in the opening episode with that wave she gave to the crowd at the Australian Open. Um, but we don't know if she'll be back. She's not playing the Australian Open in 2022. That retirement against Sasnovich... I don't know. I hope that's not the last time we see her, but it could be. It could be. And it was um, it was a really, it was so jubilant to have Wimbledon back, wasn't it? Um, and then to have this sort of jarring, n- negative downer moment with, with Serena retiring like that was, was tough, wasn't it? It sort of brought us crashing back down to earth. Yeah, and I actually think that the those few weeks, if I think of them all together, and going back to the French Open as well, and seeing the Dal in the state he was, it was it was just a very clear reminder of of how close we are to the end of this incredible era, generally. And we'll talk about Federer and, and his match later, but you know that it had that feeling of finality, uh, that of mortality. Tennis-wise, career-wise, sporting-wise, these people who've just been ever-present in our lives and uplifted for a couple of decades and more, and they can't do it forever. And here we are. Here we are. This is it. Well, you've you've led me on very well to talking about Andy Murray, who had a little had a little morissance. I went. I started down that road without knowing if it would work, and it turns out it didn't. I apologise. But you all know what I'm talking about. The the Morrisons. Oh, you did it again. Morinasons. Does that work better? Morinasons. That works a bit better, doesn't it? No, no takers for that. He gave us and himself (laughs) some moments, didn't he? Yes. Matt. Mm. (laughs) Yes, he beat. Who did he beat? Uh, Basilash Vili. He and beat Oscar and then Otter. he beat Oscar Otter. That was the one, wasn't it, mm. where, where where he decided a couple of people in the crowd were mm. his mm. wingmen for the day. Yeah. Oh, that was just amazing. And it went into the evening and we were watching it here, Matt, and waiting for you to rock up, David, and Billy Jean was waiting by the door and it was all it was all the feels, wasn't it? It was yeah, he really he really gave us a gift that fortnight, and I know he ended up coming short, uh, coming up short against Denis Shapovalov, and and very short in the end. But um, yeah, it, fe- it feels like he gave us a bit of a gift, and I know we we ended up talking about will we see Murray back at Wimbledon? You know, of I think at one stage after what eventually unfolded with Serena and Federer at the tournament, we ended up saying, you know, will we see any of them back at Wimbledon again? Well, I f- I think we all feel pretty confident that we're going to see. Murray play Wimbledon again. I mean, he's going to have a proper tilt at 2022, isn't he? What it'll look like, we don't know. But he's definitely in a different bracket to, to Federer that and Serena. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? When you think back three or four years ago, how, how has he managed this? No, just, I, know. We, I know we have this conversation he's every few weeks. He's just hired a new coach, you know. He's, he's just... been trialling several coaches <laughs> and now he's <laughs> no. got another one. Um. Federer's run at Wimbledon is another one that we look back on differently, I think, with the benefit of hindsight, don't we? I mean, he he wasn't right there. He did extraordinarily well to get where he did, I think. 
Yeah, I, I was on centre court for his first match against Adrian Manorino. I was I was with your brother, Catherine, big Federer fan, your brother, and it was it was an uncomfortable watch. This was not the Federer we were used to seeing, and he he got lucky in that one. You know, that was a retirement for Manorino, wasn't it? He was in a lot of trouble in the first round, Federer, and then he came through against Norrie, he came through against Gasquet. He was he was getting a little bit better, but none of it was convincing. And then the Hubert Hercatch match happened in the quarterfinals. And, I mean, to say he was a shadow of himself doesn't even cover it, really. I mean, he, he lost the final set of that match, six love. He was barely making an impression on the match. And it was it was really tough to watch and, and sad at the time. And given what he then announced a few weeks later about the additional surgery, it all sort of made sense, I suppose. But it just got sadder, really. Federer's... Everything pretty much about Federer this year has been has been pretty bleak, really. As, as David said, having having to confront properly for the first time that his career as a player at the top of the sport is over was was very very difficult. Mm. Yeah, and it, and he's released a statement now saying he he almost certainly won't be able to play Wimbledon twenty twenty two. You know. Who knows? Who knows if we'll see him back there? I'd I'd hate to think that a, a six love set was the last that he'll play at Wimbledon, but it it's very possible. You know, well, it's that and that was I, I remember you asking, will we see him at Wimbledon again? That was that was the question you asked after that six love set in the podcast, and we 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 took our time, but the the view was no. And and what goes through my head is thinking about what would have gone through his head during that six love set the determination to finish the match first and foremost because Roger Federer doesn't retire from matches and he didn't retire from that one. I mean, I, you know, but the knowledge that you've just done something probably really serious to your body and really you shouldn't be playing, but I, I don't know, mm. do, does, does your whole career flash before you in that moment? I, I wonder because it's not something he was prepared to talk about afterwards, understandably, but I bet it did. You know, all mm. those Wimbledons, all those Wimbledons that he's played and won. And he's just trying to sort of stumble to a finish line in a match. Um, yeah, so it's, it's not, a, not a comfortable feeling to think about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's had a hell of a run. In happier news, Wimbledon was when we were introduced to Emma Raducanu. And I was thinking, you know, had she not done what she did at the US Open, which we will be covering in some depth, how how much time would we give Emma Raducanu in this in this review show? You know, that at the time, without the promise of, you know, anything to come so soon afterwards, it still felt like an enormous deal, didn't it? Um, her run to the fourth round and it ended up being overshadowed, didn't it, by awful things being said by certain people about the manner of her exit from the tournament, her retirement about against Isla Tomljanovic. Well not overshadowed, but certainly sort of that was the that was the, the final memory of her, wasn't it? And and um the discussion that ended up taking over thereafter. But but I think the the night uh and I'm gonna try and not sound too 
smug when I say this, but I think the night when we all sat up and took Emma Raducanu seriously, really, really seriously, was the night that Billie Jean King and Alana came over for curry. <laughs> and rather than try and uh, re-describe that to you, let's play you a clip from that very wonderful night. Well, I'm presenting tonight because Catherine's just had a bit of a day, a bit of an exciting day, and uh, so has got her feet up at the moment in the ferry chair that, ooh, 20 minutes earlier, Billie Jean, actual king, was sitting in whilst we watched the football. That's not a sentence I expected <laughs> to be saying in my lifetime, Catherine. With Billie Jean, actual dog, on her knee. <laughs> it happened, yeah. It's um, it's hard to process, yes. but it was lovely. Have you enjoyed it, Matt? I mean, <laughs> that is the most ridiculous question I've ever been asked. <laughs> <laughs> this might have been, well, was, I think, the greatest evening of my life. <laughs> Billie Jean King came round for a curry to watch the football. <laughs> Amazing with uh, with Alana and uh, oh, it's just the best fun. And we've just spent two hours just watching England win four nil in the Euros to go into the semi-finals after a day of Wimbledon, and we've done it in the company of Billie Jean King, uh, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about some tennis, and we'll tell you one or two things that Billie Jean told us about what went on today as well in the process because it's been quite a day and. I'm going to start the day by talking about young Emma Raducanu, um, 18 years of age, from Great Britain. Before the tournaments, I, I knew all about her in terms of who she was and that she's a very bright talent. And, and I'd spoken probably several years ago to Nigel Sears about her when she was, I think, probably only about 14, and he, he was working with her as a junior. One or two days a week during her school holidays and things like that and uh, and 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 out and during school as well and, and he told me what a talent he thought she was but when you get a breakout moment and we had the same thing okay uh, 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 3 years younger with Coco Goff 2 years ago i don't know i it, i wasn't prepared for this at all and she got a wild card into this tournament very late on she basically wasn't on the wild card list and then they decided to give her one after the after the event at the last minute because she, I think, had a good result against Tamea Babosh, didn't she? Yeah, she got her wild card upgraded from a qualifying wild card to a main draw wild card because there were a few spots untaken and they were they were looking for likely contenders and she did enough to prove herself worthy. <laughs> and that looks like quite a good decision now, doesn't it? It's Yeah, I mean... It would almost have been less surprising to me if this had happened a couple of years ago. Two years ago, I was hearing, hearing the name Emma Raducanu a lot, just around British tennis. Her name was the one that always came up when when you inquired about genuine prospects for the future. And then it all went quiet. And I know that coincided with a pandemic. <laughs> so the world went a bit quiet in, in some respects. But... You know, I heard some rumblings about the fact that she was focusing on her studies and maybe that was not a great decision, you know, that as as much as it might be a sort of pragmatic decision, 
if you really want to make it, you can't afford to be pragmatic in that regard. But um, she's still only 18. Um, and certainly Billie Jean King thought that was a good decision. She said her parents always put the emphasis on on education. And yeah, suddenly she just popped back up into into my consciousness. Anyway, um, so it's a very... I'm both really surprised and sort of not surprised all at the same time if that if that makes sense but yeah. but it's the first time i've properly watched her play i think i ca- i caught a little bit of her in us open juniors um t- two two and a half years ago but this is the, the first time i've really sat down and watched her and she's she's a great watch it's it's easy on the eye tennis. It's really aesthetically pleasing tennis. It's great to watch. Why? Why? Matt, maybe you can help us with this a bit. Why is she so good to watch? If people haven't seen her, I mean, I was getting texts from my wife, from my mother, from my daughter, all just raving about her. But, I mean, from somebody who's watched a lot of tennis, what's, what's special? Well, listeners to this podcast will know i like a good backhand and i also like to think i know a good backhand when i see one and emma raducanu's backhand is a dream i mean billy jean king says that backhand that backhand (laughs) um it's not just the backhand that's the shot which stands out she hits so many winners off that today i think the other thing which impressed me most was how much she appeared to love the stage and that stage was caught one today and look I don't particularly enjoy the narrative around players sometimes when it's often said by a male commentator about female players why aren't they smiling I I absolutely hate that when that gets said but I think it's okay to comment on the fact that Raducanu appeared to be loving every single moment of this. She was smiling after hitting her winners. And I just think, you know, sometimes what you're looking for is something that isn't tangible with these players. And with her, it seemed to be an appreciation for the stage she was on and an ability to rise to that occasion. She kind of just showed everything today and the court one crowd absolutely loved her it was it was a real moment you know kind of hello world kind of moment from her today i think it was it was amazing to watch i try to be a little cautious these days having got carried away so many times over the years um but i feel reassured that i'm allowed to get carried away because of how much Billie jean king was getting carried away in this very room an hour or so ago, talking about Emma Raducanu as somebody that she puts up alongside Coco Goff as a rival for the future at the top end of the game. I'm not getting that wrong, am I, Catherine? That's what she said. That's what she believes. Yeah, (laughs) it would seem so. Billie Jean King knows a thing or two about tennis. Shocker, who'd have thought it? Um, that that makes me a bit emotional listening to that back, actually, because, look, we'll, we'll watch, touch wood, we'll watch plenty of Emirati Khanu throughout our lives and 
careers um and i'm sure loads of it will be brilliant and we'll love it and enjoy it but we'll never get to discover her again mm. that was that was a one time thing and that was that was it that you that you just heard and yeah it's, it was it was wonderful and special but we'll we'll never have that again um, no but but i tell you what it was a real tonic given the players that we've just described in Serena Williams and Roger Federer as being at at the the end of mm. their careers to see somebody come along we don't know what Emeraticano's future will end up being beyond where we are now of course but just to just to have this this fresh feeling of oh wow look look at what we could have to enjoy here as a player and isn't tennis still going to be wonderful you know that's what she made me feel like that there's hope yeah hope also at this stage we all thought we were definitely going to win the euros <laughs> so we didn't think Emraducanu was going to win the US Open but we definitely did think England were going to win the Euros. Yeah, that's the other slightly sad thing about that clip. Um I, I remember seeing a tweet from Wimbledon really recently actually celebrating Raducanu's birthday. She just turned 19 I think in November and they captioned it what a year and the photos were all from Wimbledon. And I remember thinking that would have been a perfectly reasonable and acceptable tweet if the US Open hadn't happened. You know, and and now Wimbledon does feel a little bit like a footnote, really, in this year. But actually, you know, we heard that clip there. This was a massive breakthrough, reaching the fourth round at her first slam, garnering such attention, doing it the way she did. It was an incredibly important block, really, in her career. And I, I sometimes forget it happened, Wimbledon, because of how enormous the US Open was. But I think it's important... It's been important to remind ourselves that Wimbledon was pretty special as well. She still never played on centre court. I think she might get to play on centre court in 2022. That is a bold prediction I'm going to make now. Um, but yeah, hasn't yet. Um, of course, we had Ash Barty uh, winning the title, beating a resurgent Karolina Pliskova. P.S. Losing love and love in the Rome final was the making of her. Uh, in the uh, final, Barty, of course, wearing the Yvonne Gulagong uh, tribute skirt. Um, it was what she'd set out to do this season when Wimbledon and she did it. And the fact that she did it after having to retire from the French Open doubly incredible you know we did not know if she was fit coming into this tournament and she did have to to play herself in um but it just I don't know looking back on that two weeks rash Barty and her winning the title if it, it felt so so right and so obvious well of course Ash Barty is a Wimbledon champion of course yeah but at the same time I was I, I was relieved that that she that she won it because I think the years can sometimes just go by and it not happen and it becomes a problem she just always felt like she should as, as you say she's she's got everything really the game the, uh, the 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 event being such a big deal in in Australia they 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 just covet Wimbledon so much, value it so much. And, and she embodied that. You could see how much it meant to her. If she retired tomorrow, it'd be fine in, in terms of what she's already achieved. And uh, and I loved how much she let us in on how much it meant to her. Mm. Uh, it was great, great story. Yeah, we saw a slightly slightly different Ash Barty, didn't we? Or, or maybe a part of Ash Barty which we're not often allowed to see. Um, after she won that title, she really 
um, let her, her guard down a bit, I think, and and showed quite a lot of emotion, and it was uh, it was very touching. Uh, we had, of course, Novak Djokovic leveling Federer and Nadal on 20 Grand Slam singles titles by beating Matteo Berrettini in the final. A, a competitive final, um, four sets against Berrettini, the Queen's champion. Um, and I know a lot of people now report that, that that was actually his most stressful match of the year, going out to, to try and level Nadal and Federer. That was weighing on his mind more than than reaching 21. Um I mean, it felt it felt so inevitable to me that he would that he would get to to twenty and beyond, um, that I don't that I don't know that I thought about it in those terms at, at the time. I mean, obviously we were talking about it being, but it felt like a stepping stone, didn't it? Twenty felt like a stepping stone, and it still might be, but they also might all end on twenty. And then we can dig the podcast out where David said that would happen. Yes, many years well, he's, ago, he's, and we laughed he said at that. Him. You said that among many other scenarios. You oh, hedged, come on, Matt, but you did that. say it. You did say it. Did I don't remember that. I sort of want it to happen. I mean, I'd love for them all to keep on, you know, winning slams. That'd be great. But realistically, there would be a beautiful poetry about oh, them would. all ending on twenty. There would. I I can't remember whether it was said as a prediction or a wish. But let's let's it say it was a prediction. Yeah. That'd be yeah, I mean, I think you threw a load of other stuff at the wall as well. Yeah, but my feeling is that if that one comes right, all the other 10 years don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but all those pod, a th- nearly a thousand podgaffs, podgaffs, what's it? <laughs> exactly, a thousand podgaffs, but they're all ruled out by that one moment of inspiration. Yeah, and that time that Federer took our breath away. Yeah, can't quite remember when that was. But anyway, uh, so Wimbledon done and dusted. We pressed on to the Olympics where we had um, uh, singles gold medals for Belinda Bencic and for Alexander Zverev. Bencic also won um, silver in the doubles. Of course, it was uh, Krujikova and Siniakova that won the the gold in the women's doubles. Um, We had uh, Mate Pavic. Um, and Nikola Mektic of Croatia, who teamed up with the Olympics in mind. They won the uh, gold in the men's doubles. And a Croatian team, who was partnering Marin Cilic? They won silver in the men's doubles, didn't they? Ivan Dodig. Ivan Dodig, of course it was. Um, we had the birth of the Rublev Pavlyuchenkova brother sister vibe team. Uh, and they hang on. It was gold and silver for the Russians in yes. Tokyo, wasn't it? Which color did Pavlyuchenkova? They were silver, weren't they? No, they won gold. Rublev and Pavlyuchenkova won gold. Rublev and Pavlyuchenkova won gold, oh. and they beat uh, Karatsev and Vesnina. Karatsev. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and of course, Djokovic was going for the Golden Slam. He lost out to Zverev in the singles, and then he then lost his bronze medal singles match to Pablo Karenia Busta. He then withdrew ahead of uh, his mixed doubles, um, scheduled mixed doubles bronze medal match with partner Nina Stojanovic. 
porn in Stoyanovich. Uh, and uh, it was Ash Barty and John Piers that kind of de facto uh, won that bronze medal. Um, there was a, a Wimbledon um, British Tennis Journalists Association uh, lunch on Thursday and uh, I was chatting to the photographer, the esteemed photographer from Getty Pictures, uh, Clive Brunskill, who's been working in tennis for for goodness knows how long. He's somebody that you'd probably all recognise if you saw him because he pops up in the corner of of every tennis court you've ever seen with a with a camera in his hand. Um, I said I was we were sort of you know catching up on our years, and I said, "Oh Tokyo, how was Tokyo?" And he said, "Hottest event I've ever been to. Awful." Too hot, he said. Too hot to play tennis, too hot to take photos. Um, so that was Tokyo. We then had Casper Rude winning three titles in a row on clay and getting sledged by Nick Kyrgios uh, on Twitter, suggesting he could only win titles on clay. Uh, Daniel Collins won back-to-back titles in uh, San Jose and... Palermo, we had a surprise title uh, for Camilla Georgie in Montreal. She beat Karolina Pliskova in the final. Ash Barty won Cincinnati. She beat Jill Teichman in that final. Of course, the uh, the men's tournament uh, in Cincinnati was won by Zverev uh, and the men's by Medvedev. That uh, the the um, the men's Canada title won by Medvedev uh, in Toronto, of course. So we march on to the U.S. Open, the final Grand Slam of the season. And Matt, you've written just the best tournament. True, well right? put. <laughs> yes, it was. That, that'll do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. It was. See you it next was week. Just the best, wasn't it? <laughs> Remember when we did Tennis Relived at the Australian Open 2017 we sort of went through day by day? How much time has to pass before we can do that with this year's US Open? Well, we're kind of about to. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Great, all my dreams are about to come true. Um, Yeah, it was... was, God, it was just brilliant, wasn't it? It, Was it brilliant because Murray Sitsipas was brilliant on the first day? Did that set the tone for the tournament? And and I know that's not scientific, but it does happen, doesn't it? Good tennis, good matches, drama. It somehow is contagious. Did Murray, Sitsipas and Toilet Gate set the scene? No. No, <laughs> not for me. Because... I never asked. <laughs> because I look at that in isolation because that feels very first week the first week was not that amazing until the middle weekend is my recollection or those middle cluster of matches but that one on its own was just an event and it had everything it was just a saga and it was a great tennis match and it was aggro it was all of it loads of stuff but it was all but it was in isolation I didn't think like the next few days were that amazing and then suddenly it went intergalactic it's funny you should say that, David, because it brings me nicely on to uh, the tweet that was put out from the very salty Andy Murray. And he was salty not just because of Lou break. I mean, he probably should have won that match, frankly. He really did play brilliant tennis. Um, and there were a couple of sets that got away from him that he really should have won. Anyway, he tweeted afterwards, fact of the day, it takes Stefanos Tsitsipas twice as long to go to the bathroom as it takes Jeff Bezos, and he didn't spell Bezos correctly. He didn't spell uh, Tsitsipas correctly either. <laughs> 
to fly into space. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. Salty Murray. We enjoyed Salty Andy Murray, didn't we? Anyway, look, the ATP have changed their changed their bathroom break rules, haven't they? Um, so uh, that was, yeah, that's that'll never happen again, that kind of drama. Um, we had uh, Nomi Osaka's loss and the heartbreaking press conference afterwards where... Oh, she was just she was just a shell of herself, and of course we had her saying, "I think I'm think I'm going to take a break from playing for a while." That was it was heartbreaking, but I think we were also all pleased that she made that decision and she didn't try and keep putting herself through something that was clearly making her making her really happy unhappy and to the detriment of her mental health. So I said it in the the previous episode. I am so pumped to see her um, in the Australian Open draw, and I think she's playing the ATP 250 event in Melbourne the week before the WTA 250. Sorry, still getting used to the the new names, the WTA tournaments uh, the week before. So um, goodness me, I'm pumped to see her back, and I hope she's in a good space. Uh, we had the the youth gang, didn't we? We are going to talk a lot about Emma Raducanu, folks, for what I hope are obvious reasons. Not just because we want to, but because we put out a call on Twitter for you to tell us what you wanted us to cover in the review of year of the year. And pretty much everybody said Emma Raducanu. So we're going to go heavy on that. But before it was just Raducanu or just Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu in the final, there was there was the the gang of youths wasn't there Carlos Alcaraz in some ways you could say started the party with his win over Stefano Tsitsipas that was when David when you concede it all caught on fire yeah 100 percent at that point I I go back to what I was saying about Wimbledon with Raducanu's introduction it it felt like they were almost trying to say something with the way they were playing to us all it's all it's all going to be all right you know, you, you you needn't worry. I know Nadal and Federer and Serena Williams, they're all great. And Novak Djokovic eventually will stop and Andy Murray will stop. But it's all right. We've got this. That's how it came across to me. Uh, and and I know that's, that's taking things beyond the reality, but that's just how it felt coming across. The, they, they believe in themselves. Leila Fernandez, Carlos Alcaraz, they step up and they say, come on, bring it on. I am ready. I was born for this. And and it was the most uplifting electric night of tennis that 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 I could imagine, really. Yeah, it was so good in that match, Carlos Alcaraz. It it, it seemed like a performance from two or three years into his future, you know. And and obviously capable of that now. I just didn't know he was on a hard court, ready for that performance. I thought that was what he would be doing in a few years' time, and and then. With Leila Fernandez, I think that's probably the one during the event which I I perhaps didn't tell well enough or reflect well enough at the time just because there was so much attention on Raducanu. But for Fernandez to do what she did, for her to be the one to embrace the New York crowd and thrive in that atmosphere was such a surprise to me. And yet it was it was really magical and the way her story worked in tandem with Raducanu's on the opposite halves of the draw they were playing on on different days through most of the tournament it was it was just incredible following those two and and Fernandez was 
you know, just as big a part of this tournament as Raducanu. Certainly up until the final, you know, we were so focused on Raducanu. But over in the States, it was the Fernandez matches, which, you know, were sort of prime time. They were the... They were the massive hits and you know, I just picture her raising her arm aloft after hitting winners, conducting the crowd and just playing just playing the most tenacious, brilliant tennis. She was she was fantastic that tournament. Yeah, she was I know this this quote isn't actually from the US Open, it's from Indian Wells, wasn't it? But what did Pam Shriver describe her as? The biggest the best ticket in tennis, the best show in tennis. Mm, yeah. um, and she was, it, it, she was during the US Open. She, I mean, she didn't end up being the biggest story. But in terms of entertainment for a neutral, she was the one that was bringing it. Raducanu won all her matches in straight sets. I'm not mm. saying there weren't, there weren't, you know, thrilling, edgy, nail-biting moments within them. But it was a completely different route to that final than Raducanu's. It was drama-tastic. You got got the sense that Fernandez really was aware of their them as a group and bought into that and was inspired. I, by I that. think they all were. Raducanu embraced mm. it as well. She 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 was asked about it and she said, "Yeah, I really wanted to stay in the gang because I should think she was playing on the other day." This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. We're going to take you back through our Emma Raducanu US Open hot takes, a review of how we reacted to 
the run of Emma Raducanu to the title at the US Open as an 18-year-old qualifier every step of the way. This is what we had to say about it. I think it's really massive for her that she won she won three of that match. You know, she had to retire in an event on North American hard courts due to heat exhaustion just a couple of weeks ago to to win through Maya Sharif in the final round of of qualifying, you know, big, biggest match of her career outside of this year's Wimbledon run in those conditions, which were just horrifying by the sounds of things. It's it's a real marker of progress kind of before your eyes and, and amazing to be 18 and for progress to happen that quickly, you know, within the space of two two weeks. I'm not saying, you know, she'll never struggle with heat and humidity ever again, but that must just feel like such a a personal triumph for her. And she came out, she blitzed everybody. I mean, Maya Sharif is a good player uh, who's who's playing the best stuff of her career. And Raducanu now faces Jennifer Brady in the first round. Well, obviously, she didn't end up playing Jennifer Brady in the opening round. Jennifer Brady um, pulled out injured and Raducanu ended up playing Stephanie Vergler in the opening round and dispatching her very handily indeed, as she did to everybody at the US Open this year. Um, but maybe there's a sliding doors world in which Jennifer Brady didn't pull out and Raducanu lost to her in the first round. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was us getting really excited about her qualifying for the main draw. <laughs> which seemed like such an achievement. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was and would have been. If that's all it had been... It would still have been brilliant, but with, with, with discuss without the qualifying, she wouldn't have won the U.S. Open. I, if she'd have just got a wild card, probably. Yeah, probably. She did so much groundwork. I think in the multiverse of that U.S. Open, there was only one universe in which Emma Raducanu won that title. You know, there were probably a hundred universes in which Medvedev won the title, ninety-nine in which Djokovic won the title. You know, a couple in which Zverev won the title. There was only one where Amirati Khani won the title. I think if any one one significant thing had been different, you know, like that, then then it probably wouldn't have happened. But anyway, um, let's progress with our reflections on the run of Emirati Khani. Emma Raducanu, the young British player's win today, six two six three over Stephanie Vogler. From what I hear, she is somebody who, who wants to know everything about her opponents. And uh, she now faces Zhang Shui in the second round, who beat her a few weeks back, didn't she, in the first match, I think, since Wimbledon. It's going to be quite interesting, that, isn't it, to see what strides have been taken in, in that interim. I can't see it being the same same match and same scoreline. I mean, the winning that Emma Raducanu has done since that match just makes this an entirely different kettle of fish, I think. She's done serious, routine winning. She's in such a groove now and she looked it. It was almost exhibition in places, Emma Raducanu today. It was like she was trying to show us the full range of her skill. It's like... It's like she was a, a young footballer and she knew a talent scout was in the audience or something. She really <laughs> showed us everything, including just her utter radiance after the match. I find her really, really magnetic and cheering to watch. There's such a joy about her. She takes you with her. 
And yeah, she's, dare I say, in quite a good section of the draw. Well, I've said it. <laughs> I asked for a show of hands in our five live commentary box after her win as to who thought she would beat Zhang Shui. There was one hand that went up, and that was Naomi Brody's. She thinks that she will take out Zhang Shui in the next round. Oh, so do I. Definitely. I really do. Let's just dwell there for a lovely moment. Good work, Catherine. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more to add. Next. Let's, let's carry on. It started with Emma Raducanu winning through comfortably against Zhang Shui of China, a player who'd beaten her just a month earlier in her in Raducanu's first match after that Wimbledon run where she got to the last 16. And to beat Zhang Catherine, a player who is, you know, she's seasoned. She, she's been around and played all sorts. I mean, it, it ended up 6-2, 6-4, but she was 4-love up in that second set. It, was a, it could have been an absolute hammering. Um, but either way, what a great result. It, it was a dismantling, really. It was, I mean, the first set was close to perfection, I think, from Emma Raducanu. Um, it was an absolute joy to watch. I don't know whether it's the brilliant naivety of youth that she's able to to stroll around the court smiling on one of the the biggest most high pressure high stakes moments of her young life and yet it not be annoying <laughs> it not seem precocious or smug or any of those things it's you know it's an unteachable gift isn't it but she just she makes me smile her tennis makes me smile it is so smooth and it feels so secure she i we're so we're so programmed as British sports fans to feel anxious whilst watching um, whoever our charge might be, no matter how good they are. And she doesn't make me feel at all anxious. Somehow, she's there's this level of comfort about her and about watching her. And but I say it again, she she does seem to have it all. That doesn't mean that you know. There won't be second season syndrome when players start to figure her out and it's all just going to be plain sailing and all of that. But she definitely has the raw materials to to be something very serious. Again, yep, nothing further to add. Nailed it. <laughs> Kept it vague, but nailed it. Yeah, yeah, podcast special. Next. <laughs> Just when we, we thought, you know, we'd ridden out the wave of 18-year-old sensations yesterday, Emma Raducanu, 18 years old, from Great Britain, we knew she was good. This is not the first time she's reached the fourth round of a Grand Slam. She did it just a few weeks ago. And yet my jaw is still on the floor from what she did earlier who she showed us that she was earlier, Matt. Six love, six one over Sara Saribes Tormo, who is a player that I think commands real locker room respect mm. as win or lose, she makes you work for it. Nothing comes easy. <laughs> and yet love and one <laughs> looks awfully easy. Emma Raducanu made tennis on the biggest stage with the highest stakes look so easy today 
And as I said on the Prime Video coverage, we've officially reached the stage where I'm no longer going to police any of the pundits for getting too overexcited about Emma Adekanu, for overhyping her. All bets are off now. I'm not sure there is such a thing as overhyping. I mean, it is what it is. Her her talent was there for all to see today, and it is dazzling. Yeah, I mean, speaking of overhyping, I came up with a with a line that put her in the company of Chris Everett, Monica Seles, and Jennifer Capriati. <laughs> and I sort of reluctantly tweeted it, but then I thought, no, I am going to tweet it because it's just a fact what she's achieved. And, and that is reaching the fourth round of both her first two Grand Slams is something that those players have achieved. She She gave a line afterwards, didn't she? A brilliant line about how she really wanted to join the Alcaraz Fernandez gang. Yes. Yeah, she said that seeing those two 18-year-olds do what they did yesterday motivated her. And, you know, she she wanted to be part of that story in this tournament. And she wasn't getting into any chat about Ash Barty. It was all, well, Ash Barty hasn't won yet. And I'm through to the fourth round. And I'll talk about that when I know who the opponent is. Spoiler alert, the opponent was not Ash Barty. Because, of course, Ash Barty was felled by Shelby Rogers and it ended up being Shelby Rogers that Emma Raducanu faced in that fourth round, her first match, of course, on the Arthur Ashe Stadium. Let's start with Emma Raducanu, who very definitely is into the quarterfinal of the US Open on her US Open debut at only her second Grand Slam. She is the youngest Brit to reach the quarterfinal of the US Open since Christine Truman in 1959, who was only two months younger. She was watched on as she reached the quarterfinal with a straight sets win over Shelby Rogers by by Billie Jean King, by Martina Navratilova in our Prime Video commentary booth, by Virginia Wade, just beaming. Mm. And she, she described Virginia as an absolute legend in her on-court post-match interview with Pam Shriver. In fact, we're just getting, while Djokovic is off-court, we're just getting a little recap of her win and we're seeing Emma Raducanu, broad smile, on her knees, jogging up to the net and shaking the hands of, well, actually giving a hug to a slightly shell-shocked Shelby Rogers because Emma Raducanu was two love, 15-40 down. Love two, 15-40. It was a slightly eerie start. Martina Navratilova had been on the prime coverage all day and she said something which I found so interesting about how champions or future champions look like they've had experience even if they haven't yet and there's just this sense of belonging about them before they've even accomplished what they go on to accomplish in their careers that make them a champion and for those first couple of games, there were nerves for Raducanu and it, and it didn't look like that. But how quickly it changed and how quickly it did look like she belonged on that court. As soon, as soon as she got a foothold, she then won 11 games in a row. And this is becoming her trademark, these runs of games that she reels off. She's done it in all of her matches this tournament. She did it to Castello at Wimbledon. And it's like, as soon as she gets to a level which is kind of her best level, she's able to sustain it. And no one has been able to live with it yet. There's a tension between how illogical and absurd it all is 
for her to be doing this and how logical it seems when you actually watch her play. Yes. Because we've got no data points for her against any of these players whatsoever. And yet we're watching each match and she is acquitting herself like a top player. She's thrashing players, well, in her last two, ranked around 40 in the world. She's crushing them. She's just making them look like nothing. And it's the first time we've seen her play these sorts of players. So that's all we've got to go on. And, and all different sorts of players as well. I mean, Shelby Rogers could not be more different to Sara Saribes Tormo. Yeah, great point. 15 games dropped in four matches in the main draw. Not many more dropped in qualifying. The last time someone did something like that was Sviontek. Oh, oh, you've gone there. I've gone there. I mean, don't you think that... Okay, we knew more about Sviontek. I thought you were going to say John McEnroe, 1977. (laughs) (laughs) Wimbledon. Um, But, I mean, we knew more about Sviontek. She'd reached, I think, fourth rounds of slams. Um, She'd been on the tour. One junior slams. Yeah, so she was more established. But as that French Open run was happening, it was just becoming more and more difficult to deny Mm. that she was playing the best tennis in the mm. tournament. It was a very different tournament because a lot of the big names went out and a lot of the big names are still in this tournament. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> I've made my point. <laughs> this is a flattering edit, Matt. I I thank you very much. Um, yeah, on to the next brilliant hot take, please. We can start... With Emma Raducanu's win again. I mean, we were talking 24 hours ago, Matt, and we ended up thinking that she would win. But it still didn't make it any less startling to me that she did win and the manner in which she won against Belinda Bencic. What was it? 6-3, 6-4 today. Extraordinary, really. Yeah, absolutely. Andy Murray was on the... Prime video coverage and the build-up to that match, along with a host of brilliant guests, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, all talking to Catherine on there. And Catherine asked Murray what his advice would be for Raducanu stepping on that court. And he gave such a brilliant answer. He said, most people would tell you to enjoy it, but that's really hard to do. And Murray suggested that you prepare for the worst case scenario, basically, which is (laughs) going down a break or having a tough moment and sort of expecting that to come. And how do you respond? And presumably that is something Raducanu had prepared for because it happened, didn't it? Straight away. She was nervous right at the start. She Mm. didn't have her game. She went down a break and Benchich was playing very, very well at the start of the match. But as soon as Raducanu held and got a foothold in the match, she became a different player. She became the player we've seen most of this tournament. It did take a little bit of time, but there was no panic from Raducanu. There was just, I suppose, a belief, a trust in her game that it will come. And when it comes, well, I mean, as you said, we're learning so much about her game I think she is as well she she gave an answer in her post-match press conference where she was asked what she's been most impressed with about herself you know what what has surprised herself in this tournament and 
she mentioned her mental strength to be able to deal with these situations which she's never been in before on the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And she also mentioned her athleticism and her movement. She said, I'm getting to balls I didn't know I could get to. I'm doing the splits. It's quite reassuring in a way that she's discovering at the same sort of rate that we are about her. Excitement levels in this country right now are off the charts, really. I mean, I've talked about the profile being given to her on BBC Radio, for instance, and uh, we we totally moved the drive time show today to accommodate Emma Raducanu's commentary in a tennis match. That that just does not happen at five o'clock in the afternoon in the UK. And uh, it was it was great to see. I mean, the same will happen for the semi-final. Uh, obviously, that's a different time slot. That'll be middle of the night, so it's a little easier. But looking at the, the newspapers online, she is on the front page of the Telegraph. She is on the front page of the Guardian. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's Emma Mania. I loved Emma Mania. <laughs> it was great, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, that was, the, that, that was the first match, I think, where we saw her face real adversity. Um, when she went when she went an early breakdown to Belinda Bencic, that's how I remember it. That was the first time I felt any kind of sort of Emiratikanu related anxiety. It turned out to be quite short lived, of course, but um, I do remember briefly feeling it. And and I think I felt, oh well, maybe she just can't compete at this class. You know, Bencic had been playing so well; she'd been coming off the Olympics. It, it was a big step up, and the early signs were. Maybe Bengtschitz was just going to be too good, but didn't didn't last like that for very long. <laughs> no, and we thought the same might be the case again going into the semi-final with Maria Sakkari. Well, you know, folks, the tennis podcast has been in existence for coming up to 10 years. And the idea of it is to talk to each other, myself, David Law, Matt Roberts and Catherine Whitaker, who's not with us tonight because she's she's getting some sleep ahead of uh, her TV presenting duties tomorrow. And we will be back together all very soon. But the idea of the podcast is for us all to talk about what's gone on in the tennis each day and react to it and look ahead to what's coming next. Well, I don't quite know how we're going to do that tonight, Matt, because for the first time in those nearly 10 years of doing this... I don't know what to say about what we've just witnessed from particularly Emma Raducanu, who, who has just reached the final of the US Open in only her second Grand Slam tournament in her entire life. And she's done it as a qualifier, which nobody has ever done before. She's played 18 sets. She's won all 18, none of them closer than 6-4. And she's done it in a manner with tennis that has just left me breathless. I just can't, I can't believe what I've witnessed. And she's going to play an all-teenage final against Leila Fernandez, who in, in her own right has just played jaw-dropping tennis and shown guts and determination and tenacity and fighting spirit and defiance and brilliance. And I feel giddy. I feel absolutely. I feel giddy on it all. And it's uh, it's it's simultaneously wonderful and exhausting and overwhelming. Can you do any better? <laughs> well, like you, I am absolutely buzzing after what I've just witnessed tonight. I was so 
amped for this day. I, I woke up this morning with real excitement about it, actually, because I remembered last year's US Open women's semi-final night and how great that was. And I said to Catherine, this US Open has surpassed last year's US Open sort of all the way as an experience, as a tournament. But I do wonder whether it can live up to last year's women's semi-final night because that was truly special. And maybe it didn't sort of quality-wise, but it ran it close. And story-wise, it has lived up to it. Hell yes. <laughs> as, as you say, how are we supposed to convey what's happened? Perhaps we can convey the feeling of what's happened. I mean, the specifics are a little bit of a blur. Um, the whole evening I was just going, oh my God, no way. What is going on? How is this happening? Yeah, my, my mind has been blown. I think the two teenagers have been the story of the tournament in so many ways, but I didn't. I didn't actually think they would get to the final. It was a it was a bit of a joke on Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday, and now it's here. It is. I just can't even begin to fathom it. Um, it's you know we're watching history in real time, and that is very very thrilling. Matt, I still have uh, leftover melon balls <laughs> in my freezer. From uh, from women's semi final night. Of course, I, I had the day off because the the only the only the only session of singles was that night session which uh, Marcus Buckland was was presenting. And um, yeah, so I I did homemade honey juices for myself, Matt and uh, and Billie Jean. And uh, I bought a melon. I bought a melon baller. I created melon ball ice cubes. It was a triumph. I still have a Tupperware box full of. Melon ice cubes in my freezer, <laughs> which I should probably throw out. Anyway, uh, um, we were buzzing then, <laughs> and that was before the big one. Here is our reaction to Emma Raducanu winning the US Open. Well, I think we've all just witnessed one of the greatest sporting stories of all time, and frankly, are witnessing because Matt and I are watching it on replay as we record this podcast. Emma Raducanu, who was sitting her A-levels in Bromley, in Kent, three months ago, is the US Open champion. She is the only qualifier to have ever won a Grand Slam title in men's or women's tennis. She's the first British woman to win a Grand Slam title since Virginia Wade won Wimbledon in 1987 and Virginia Wade beamed on in the crowd in the Arthur Ashe Stadium tonight as Emma Raducanu won that title. I really could go on for a very long time, but the records, the words, the various different forms of stuttering <laughs> that that pundits of all sorts have done, certainly on our prime video coverage tonight i'm not sure any of it any of it can really capture the magic and the wonder of what emma Raducanu was achieved so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna throw this hot potato over to you matt <laughs> and hope that you can have a fist at it because i'm at a bit of a loss it's too much this really is going to be something that is looked back on in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, this is 
something extraordinary that we've witnessed tonight and this frankly this whole tournament it's very hard to wrap your head around what's happened i think quite naturally we often look for comparisons and to try and make sense of things but there just are not any comparisons and it's not it's not an age thing in fact one of the least remarkable things yeah. about this is that she's 18 it is remarkable of course it is but that has been done before teenagers have won grand slams before less and less often but it's happened and they've gone deep in slams but for me it's it's the complete lack of experience that she had at this level as you said was sitting her a levels very recently has barely played on the tour and this was just her second ever Grand Slam appearance, which is a record for someone to win a Grand Slam at just their second attempt. The previous record was four, which was Monica Seles and Bianca Andreescu tied. She has halved that record. It's so improbable and implausible. And yet when I was watching, to watch her was to see someone who was ready. Even without the experience, it was to see someone who was good enough. It was to see someone who owned the stage and had a poise and felt like the winner. I think this match was was great and was a real answer to that sort of existential tennis question of whether a straight sets match can be a classic or an epic. Because I really do think this was. The quality was high. was so high. For them high. to both come out for their first Grand Slam final. And maybe maybe it is down to the fact that it was a first for both of them, that there wasn't that inequality in experience. Yeah. But and neither of them was the favourite. Yes. Really. For them to play the quality that they did pretty much from the word go was astonishing. They just showed up in the way they've showed up all tournament. And actually, it was a match which ended up pitting their qualities against one another because Raducanu came out and had an early break. And yet she wasn't able to turn that into one of her trademark runs of games because she met the resistance and the toughness of Leila Fernandez, who just wasn't going to allow the match to become like that. It was the best of both of them, really. And it was a really great match with momentum swings and high quality. It was it was a delight. It struck me tonight on the on the prime video coverage and, and generally everything I was reading ahead of this match and sort of during the match on social media and so on, how little Andy Murray came up. It just feels like a completely different category of achievement. Mm. Do, do you know, I'm going to need some help with finessing that. and explaining that, which I'm hoping you can telepathically read my mind and help me. Well, Murray's was all about the struggle to do mm. it, wasn't it? It was all about getting Just over the line. falling himself across the line. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Raducanu has sort of been catapulted or catapulted herself into this position from, you know, not nowhere. People have known about Emma Raducanu's talent for a long time. And actually, I think the pandemic meant that we probably didn't see her on the tour as soon as we might have done. You know, she sort of had 18 months to develop her game, but not 18 months to show us that game. But yeah, you know, with Murray, it was about just trying to compete with the big three and trying to win something that I think everyone knew he was capable of. And he ought to. And he ought to. It would be 
it would it would be a letdown if he if he didn't find a way to win a Grand Slam or become a Grand Slam champion. And the, and the predominant feeling and atmosphere. Look, I wasn't I wasn't covering Andy Murray's 2012 US Open win the way it was covering Raducanu's win tonight. But the prevailing emotion all around for Andy Murray in 2012 was relief. I think and mm. Andy has subsequently spoken about that. And there was. Relief couldn't have been further from the Arthur Ashe Stadium tonight. It just didn't even creep into the corners of the court, did it? It was just pure, unadulterated joy. And I think joy is so rarely untainted by other emotions. Usually emotions are a sort of unsatisfying melange somehow. There There is so rarely a real purity to them. And I think... I think the purity of this story and of and of the emotion about it all, and I think this applies to Leila Fernandez as well, is is part of what's made it just so so engaging and and wrapped us all up in it. We kept on going to to Tim Herman courtside after the match because I really feel like Emma Raducanu has enabled Tim Herman to fall in love with tennis again over the course of the last couple of weeks. Not the didn't like and enjoy tennis, but it's not the same after you retire. Um, and I, I've ne- I've never seen Tim Hemman like this. He was just completely enlivened and emotional in a way I'd I'd never seen him before. And watching him try and find the words to sum it up, he just kept saying, "It's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke." And yeah, you'd have been laughed out of town for even suggesting it two weeks ago. Take me back. <laughs> Take me back. It was, uh, wow. Wow, that really did happen. Um, David, you weren't on that podcast. Um, no. I imagine that might have been quite difficult for you to listen to, actually. Yeah, it's, it, it is a bit. And it was, I mean, I loved listening to it, actually, um, uh, afterwards uh, when i immediately heard the podcast because i wasn't on that show and uh funny enough when you listening back and where you you say let me throw this hot potato to you matt see if you can do anything with it and i just think you did the most magnificent job i really i think you 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 just found the words to to go with it so well um both of you did um but yeah i was i was not there and i had been part of the five live tennis team that was covering that match um but yeah i was going through a bit of a crisis to be honest um and uh and it dated back to the the middle weekend funny enough in the middle of the other incredible night of tennis when carlos alcaraz was doing what he was doing against stefano sitsipas and leila fernandez was doing what she was doing and it's all a bit of a blur to me because um during that middle weekend i i started to feel unwell when i was on air and uh you know, I I I had to leave early, and I went back, and it's, I don't really remember much about that night. If you, you you'll recall that I just said to you guys, listen, I I don't think I can do tonight. I don't think I can do the podcast tonight. And you were you were just 
you're adamant. Listen, this this we need we need pumped law for this, you know. Sort of this uh, Carlos Alcaraz sum up night. You didn't know what was going on. You had no idea what what was happening to me. I didn't really know what was happening to me either. Um, but I I thought I'd got I thought I'd got COVID. Frankly, is what I thought initially. Um, so because I'd got all the symptoms that you would associate with it: breathlessness, fever, incredible fatigue, all the rest of it. Um, headaches and uh, and was confined to bed until I could get a, a COVID test a couple of days later, which um, which I had, and it was negative, which was great because it meant I didn't have to go and isolate, uh, which meant that I could go back and cover the tennis, and I did, and I went off and did another four or five days for BBC Radio. I got to commentate probably one of the most exhilarating nights of my my entire career, which is described in the moment that Emma Raducanu smashed the ball away to reach the US Open final. I don't think I've ever had a more enjoyable match point of commentary. That one and when Andy Murray became year-end world number one, probably with the two uh, in 2016. And so we got to we got to Emma Raducanu final night, and obviously a huge night for you. You were presenting the Amazon Prime video coverage, which was simulcasting on Channel Four for eleven million people, and you know I was buzzing about all of it. And I was I wasn't commentating on the match, but I was in the studios at the BBC, bobbing between the the various TV studios. There were so many different outlets interested in the story that I was kind of like this, the the person assigned to to be the guest on all of them. And I was having the time of my life, uh, bobbing between these stu- studios. And then suddenly it started to happen again while I was on air, um, trying to sum up the match. I barely remember the last four or five games of the match I barely I barely remember what happened barely remember sort of seeing see I could barely see the screen it was sort of I was starting to get double vision um and I was on air and uh and I remember thinking I've I've, I've got to just find a way to get out wrap up without looking an idiot here because I can't I can barely string a sentence together I'm struggling to struggling to talk properly um and uh, and I managed to do that um, and again, I had to pull out of the podcast that night, which if you consider we've, we've nearly done a thousand podcasts. Um, and I, th- I haven't really missed any, you know, I don't, I don't miss them. I, I'll, I'll, it's a, it's a running joke, isn't it? About the hours I'll stay up in order to get this thing done. I fell as- I've fallen asleep while editing the show in our early years before we had editors. I used to, <laughs> it's every three in the morning and I'd, I'd wake up halfway through the edit. Um, but no, I couldn't. I couldn't handle this. There's no chance. Um, and the next night, I had to pull out of commentating on the final uh, between Daniel Medvedev and Novak Djokovic. So you know that's that was tough. That was a really tough thing to have to do. I mean, look, you know, people have had COVID situations far far worse than I've had. Um, but the biggest problem was that I I was testing negative. And I still was testing negative, so I really didn't know what was happening. It was, it was really quite quite frightening. Um, and then, as the weeks have gone on, I, I, I got better. It was it was kind of bittersweet. It's always been bittersweet for me thinking about this tournament because it was so exhilarating. I loved your coverage. Um, I loved the podcast coverage, but I wasn't I wasn't really able to do it. I wasn't really able to be part of it, and I didn't really know what was happening. So, um, and then uh, and then. As you you two will both know, um, 
some weeks later, we got together in London at Tennis Podcast Towers, uh, Catherine's place, for um, for a plan for a set of planning meetings. And we had the time of our lives. We had a great night at the pub. Matt and me went to the to to play golf. Um, we're, we're two hours, two or three hours through our planning meetings. All of this stuff for Friends of the Tennis Podcast that we've started now, and all of our plans for next year. You know, because we want to want to keep driving forwards, and we want to make this the best we possibly can. And suddenly it started to happen again, and I and as you will remember, I was sitting there in your place, and I just couldn't, I couldn't really start, I couldn't see straight, I couldn't think straight. I was getting this, as I now know it, to be brain fog, um, and uh, shakes and shivers and fatigue, and I just had to stop, cancel all my meetings for the next day. Uh, ended up taking a, an antibody test, and it turned out that it, I had had COVID. It just had never got picked up. Um, and what I was, I think, experiencing was symptoms of long COVID. And that's happened on and off really to me now for the last, well, three months. Um, fortunately, I've had a couple of good weeks now. Uh, I'm hoping that, that it's out of my system. And, and I'm very aware that there are a lot of people with long COVID who've had it way, way worse than I have. But crikey, it, it has taken a toll. It's been, it's been very difficult. Um, and so, yeah, it is quite quite an experience to to listen back to all of that. Um, and yeah, ultimately, I, I look look back on it very happily because it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, but yeah, that's why I wasn't on the final show. Goodness me, yeah, it was a it was a low moment, wasn't it, Matt? When we when we realised David wasn't well enough to do that Emirata Carney final show, wasn't it? Because obviously we were desperately worried about David but we had to do this podcast and it had to be you know fitting of of what we'd just watched and yet we were yeah I was I was I was relieved listening to that back that it was it thanks largely to you it it made a lot made a lot of sense it was it sounded good you you both did me proud I'll tell you that (laughs) I'll tell you that much now um but yeah, I mean, it's not about us. Obviously, it's about you, David, and in a wider sense, about Emirati Carney. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been tough, hasn't it? Yeah, in our little world, it was it it was tough that week, and we didn't really know what was going on with David. That we were we were very worried about you, um, and you know, in, in, a, in a podcast sense, we knew you would find the words, you know, for to sum up an achievement like Emirati Carney's, you know, and we knew you wanted to. So when when you couldn't do the podcasts, as you said, when you pull out of a podcast, it's serious. And we've continued to be worried about you actually over the last few months. To be honest, you've you've had a you know you have had a rough time with with this long COVID, and we're really hoping that you're coming out the other side of it now. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's. Look, that's a bit of insight into to what we've been going through as a podcast for the past few months and obviously most importantly what David's been going through. Um but um yeah. D- I I don't know how to move on from that to talk about tennis. <laughs> the world the world was deprived, David, your commentary on Daniil Medvedev's winning celebration. <laughs> After he beat Novak Djokovic, had it not been for bloody COVID, of all the things that COVID has ruined over the past two years, it also ruined five live listeners' opportunity to hear David describe what we now know is the 
dead fish? I would have. I, I don't think I'd have done a very good job at that. I don't know what on earth I would have come up with. <laughs> I was hoping you might create for us how it might have sounded. I, I mean, I, I. The thing is, I mean, you very quickly seemed to figure out what it was. You got oh, word of what it was. Somebody in the gallery. Yeah. Uh, now about 20 22 year old sam in the gallery who does our stats and is uh, is brilliant he knew and he told me i'm slightly worried i would have said oh my god he's collapsed <laughs> <laughs> he's keeled over with the excitement of it all because <laughs> that's what it looked like isn't it? it was i mean it was in hindsight epic but it was <laughs> frightening and a bit weird uh but uh no i mean uh yeah but, but the thing is that the the final wasn't epic at all was it i mean no. it was it was Ep- epic dramatic. achievement from great achievement from medvedev but i have to say i remember it more for for djokovic in, in many ways mm. and uh this is how we reacted to it all so Djokovic is 4-5 down, Medvedev is about to come out and try to, to serve for it again. And Djokovic buries his face in his towel and at first it looks like he's just mopping up the sweat, as is normal. And then you realise his chest is heaving and he is sobbing into the towel, his face contorted in despair. And I have never seen anything like it, Matt. Uh, I have never seen anything like it. And again, we probably need David here for his slightly longer memory. But yeah, look, we, we've seen tears on a tennis court. We've relived, relived a lot of tears on a tennis court, but I've never seen those kind of tears and certainly not from that that player. It was extraordinary. I, I'll never forget that change of ends. And I think there was a lot happening, wasn't there? There was a combination of things. There was the realisation... I think that it was slipping away, that it was, you know, kind of gone. Okay, he was still in the match, but he was on the brink of defeat, something he's worked so hard for. And there was also the incredible reception he was getting from the crowd during this Mm. changeover. He was touching his heart and thanking them, and, and they were behind him like a crowd has never been behind Novak Djokovic before. And... There is something a bit cruel, I think, about what he what he had to give up for him to get that support. I mean, they were supporting him from the start, I think. They were behind him. They wanted to see history. But it was seeing him lose that actually really turned them massively in favour of him and seeing what it meant to him, seeing that emotion. And Djokovic has kind of had everything in his career except that love of the crowd. And it's... It's a nonsense if people say that doesn't matter to him. It has mattered to him. He has craved it. Sometimes I think he's denied it. And as I said, it hasn't always had an effect on the outcome of matches. But his actions have always been really telling. You know, the way he stopped doing the impersonations, the way he Mm -hmm. does that celebration to the crowd, you know. But but didn't, didn't, crucially, after the, the, the two matches this tournament when he received the most negative reception from the crowd, arguably very unfairly from the New York crowd. But, you know, he noticed and he responded. Absolutely. And all of Djokovic's quotes after the match, both in his encore speech and in his press conference, 
confirm that it matters to him. It really matters to him. And that's fine. Completely fine. It's we great. We all want to be loved. Totally. And look, that's the most human thing, isn't it? Yeah. Some of the quotes are extraordinary from Djokovic, you know, talking about real gratitude for the crowd and how they sort of touched his soul and and genuinely gave him a positive feeling on the on the night which was one of the toughest of his career. He 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 did win something tonight. He didn't win probably what he thought he wanted the most, which was the calendar slam. But that that reception he received I think has has fueled him and has helped him in a way that he didn't realize was was possible because he's never had something like that before. And I absolutely think all of that has has aged really well, Matt. I think that has turned out to be true. I th- I think there w- there has been something different about Novak Djokovic in this final part of the season. He has been and look, okay, I know he hasn't had on the line what he's had on. For, you know, there haven't been any Grand Slams. He hasn't been going for the Calendar Slam. It's a you know, it's a lower stakes portion of the season for Djokovic, but he still turned up for it all. He wanted, he wanted the the seventh year-end number one he wanted to to beat Medvedev in that Paris final and he he's looked completely liberated to me he he looks like some shackles have come off that 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 US Open final experience has freed him of some demons and I'm sure part of it is he's not got the stress of you know having to to or wanting to to achieve this kind of once in a lifetime, once in a career thing, and knowing that it's now or never really for the calendar slam. I mean, he said that himself, didn't he? At the, the start of the, the US Open, you know, 21 can hopefully come at any time in the next few years, body permitting, but the calendar slam was now or never. But now that all of that is gone and now that he has had that validation from a crowd, he seems different to me. Who I don't know if it'll continue. I, we don't know if he'll play, he'll play Australia. If he does play Australia, he might not be received well by the by the crowds there. We don't know what situation he'll be playing in, vaccine wise. So many unknowns, but he's looked different back end of the season to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, and, and Paris, I think particularly was was important, wasn't it? You know, the fact he won that tournament just after having lost the U.S. Open final just his ability to bounce back the way he played with his kids watching him. I think both of them watching him live for the first time, that was a sort of nourishing experience for him as well. And yeah, there's been a, there's been a contentment around Djokovic Mm. in this, in this latter portion of the season. Mm, That's a good description for it. So just to round off the U S open then, um, Joe Salisbury won the doubles and mixed doubles title. He was uh, alongside Desiree Kravchik, of course, and very importantly, both Dida de Chut and Dylan Alcott completed calendar golden slams or golden calendar slams at the US Open. And Dylan Alcott, in particular, did just the most epic heroic celebration of that on the Arthur Ashe Stadium. That wasn't where he played his match, but he and the other wheelchair champions were sort of introduced to to the crowd in a change of ends, I think it was, uh, during whatever match was going on on the Arthur Ashe Stadium. I think it 
I think it was the final. Medvedev, it was the Djokovic. final, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, Dylan Alcott poured a beer into his trophy and downed it. And it was epic. Well done, Dylan Alcott, for all that you've achieved this year. So that was the US Open. Um, and while it, while it had its struggles for David and, and for us, it was, it was epic. It really was epic. It was one for the ages. And I'm quite confident that that's not recency bias, that that take will stand the test of time. Um, we won't dwell too long on what's happened since then, because frankly, a lot of it's really recent. Um, and it's too soon to relive it all. But there are, there are a few notable things I think to touch upon. Um, we had the ATP finally announcing um, that it would be launching an internal investigation into some of the allegations made against Alexander Zverev by his ex-girlfriend, Olya Sharipova. She um, she alleged to, to Ben Rothenberg in two separate um, articles in Racket Magazine and in Slate um, that she had suffered... Uh, domestic abuse during their time together and and one of those accusations is being investigated internally by the ATP we have not heard anything since that announcement was made and there doesn't seem to be any timeline on the situation uh we had Indian Wells played in October which was kind of weird and wonderful Paola Bedosa and Cameron Norrie champions there again going back to this lunch i went to on thursday poor cameron norrie wins indian wells qualifies for the atp finals doesn't even win british player of the year because of blooming emma Raducanu. <laughs> and then poor joe salisbury sat there you know with his doubles double at the u.s open didn't get a sniff for player of the year and then, More, and then, and then, then, you've, then you've got Gordon Reed and Alfie Hewitt that did the the calendar slam in doubles. Nope, they're not players of the year either because 18-year-old Emirati Khanu had to go and do a thing. Um, good year for British tennis, though. Um, so, yeah, in- incredible that Cameron Norrie won, uh, won Indian Wells. Really incredible. Um, Andy Murray gave us a few more moments, didn't he, in the, uh, in the back end of the season. That, that win over Tiafo. <laughs> It's probably drained a bit from his canister, I would say. Just a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Temporarily, he's refilled it. He's playing like a man with canister to burn, put it that way. Um, We had the surge of Annette Contivate, didn't we? Back-to-back titles in Moscow and Cluj to qualify for the WTA finals. She is such a force, isn't she, under Dmitry Tursunov. Going to be very interesting to see how she fares next year. Same applies to Garbinia Muguruza. Can she carry the form and the joy and just the general sort of brilliant disposition of Guadalajara and the WTA finals into the 2022 season? I'd love to see it. That's a very good question, that. Uh, I'm not convinced because she, no. because she's so somebody who's so pent up. You know, she wants it so much. Can she release that? I don't, I'm not convinced about that. It was a perfect marriage, really, wasn't it? The Guadalajara energy mm-hmm. and vibe and Garbine Muguruza. She's not going to have that elsewhere. But the tennis she played this year, to think that she might, not win a Grand Slam on a hard court during her career 
is is an absurd thought, and I I sort of think she might get one next year. She's playing so well. And and she's played brilliantly in Australia the last couple of years, hasn't she? She has come out and brought it um, at that tournament. So I'd love to see it. I love just seeing her enjoy her tennis like she is at the moment. That was uh, a joy to watch at the WTA finals. It was uh, it was brilliant seeing them in Guadalajara. Who knows where they'll be next year? Um, we don't expect them to be in China, and that is because as things stand at the moment, due to the situation around Peng Shui, who still hasn't been heard from directly by the WTA. Um, the situation is that WTA have suspend, suspended all of their tournaments in China. So it might be that the tour doesn't return there in 2022. And unfortunately, that has been a huge feature of the end of this tennis season. And it's one that unfortunately looks like it's going to drag on and should drag on. We need to keep talking about it. While we still have no credible reassurances of Peng Shui's freedom and safety, the only thing to do is to keep talking about it. Yeah, no, it's, it certainly is. And um, and, and actually, um, that is one area that I am encouraged, not only by the, the incredible stand, strong stance of the WTA and Steve Simon, but the way that people are picking it up and going with it, the diplomatic... Uh, boycotts that we've heard of the Winter Olympics from multiple countries now. The fact that the daily podcast for the New York Times ran its entire show about it on Friday. You know, this is taking it to a wider audience, and and it's necessary. It's about time. With and this is only one of so many situations of its type, and uh, we we're, we're particularly close to it because we're a tennis podcast, and she's a tennis player. But I, I find it encouraging that that people are continuing to talk about it and absolutely we're going to do the same mm. the atp finals ended its season in turin and alexander zverev was a champion there i'm still i'm still confused about what happened in the final there um with daniel medvedev that still is perplexing to me he really didn't play well i mean zverev played great tennis and you know worthy champion but that doesn't change the fact that Medvedev really didn't show up for that final. Um, and I thought he was sort of over that just not showing up thing. Everybody has a bad day, though. Yeah, but how often do the, the champions have bad days in finals? Yeah, fair fair point. Um, but he, he he does occasionally... I mean, I think I think we felt the same at the Australian Open. Well, it, yeah, but I, I, I thought, surprising. as I said, yeah, agreed. I thought there'd been a shift but maybe not. He likes to keep us on his toes, on, his, on our toes, doesn't he, Daniil? And the Davis Cup experience has made that ATP Finals even more inexplicable to me because I thought maybe yes. he'd just hit the wall and had nothing left. But actually, OK, he didn't play anyone anywhere near the quality of Alexander Zverev at the Davis Cup, but he was excellent and he was really up for it and he just didn't bring that to the final in, in Turin. It was curious. Ma- Maybe, though, if somebody is able to live with him when he's playing his good stuff and he's playing his relentless rallies and somebody, you know, Zverev beat him at his own game and so did Djokovic at the Australian Open, really, if you think about it. No, there was no, there was, no, I disagree. Medvedev didn't show up. I mean, yes, Zverev was too good for him. Zverev absolutely did show up and was great. 
But no, it's not as Medvedev didn't show up. He was he just he was missing rally balls. That's not that's not Zverev hitting winners past him. He was missing just routine rally balls, which just isn't something that the Medvedev does mm. anyway. Anyway, maybe it was just a bad day. Just a bad day. Who knows? Um, he went on to, to win the Davis Cup, of course, as did Yevgeny uh, Donskoy, uh, Asen Karatsev, Karen Hashanov, Andrei Rublev, all of them Davis Cup champions. Uh, and, of course, they did the double with the Fed Cup. I imagine you'll remember your, sorry, Billie Jean King Cup. Oh, my goodness me. I can't believe I've done that. Billie Jean is, she, she honestly, when I said that, she poked her head up and looked at me. Consider me chastened. Um, on, I imagine, I imagine, Matt, that'll be a big memory of the year for you. The uh, the BJK Davis Cup double. The press conference. The, the which swing. Got to be one of the greatest 10 minutes of audio I've heard all year. <laughs> David's favourite moment was uh, being a viewer of that press conference and sort of helpless, really, and hoping that I did said the right thing. And it was a sort of adrenaline <laughs> rush for us all. It's, it's like when your kids do something really big and you can't do anything to help them and you just hope they nail it. <laughs> and boy, did he nail it! <laughs> You're in an awkward situation now where you can't you can't carry on your answer because David's just paid you a massive compliment. <laughs> um, yes, you were brilliant, Matt. It was a uh, it was brilliant cherry on the Billie Jean King cup cake. Um, yeah, that was your 2021. What does 2022 hold? Anyone care to make some outlandish predictions like an 18-year-old qualifier winning a Grand Slam? No, I think I'm all prediction now. So <laughs> get, let me, let, give, give me a couple of weeks off and first podcast okay. of the year and I will hit you with okay. some belters. Holding you, can have you a, to that, David. You can have a one-week off-season. That is all that tennis will allow. <laughs> you've got to, sque- you've got to squeeze in um, a gym block a an on-court block and a holiday to the Maldives and you've got seven days. That is your tennis off-season challenge. Great. I won't be doing any of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, goodness me, it's been a wild year. Um, yeah, most of it good. A couple of low points. Um, I hope you don't mind us uh, sharing a few of those with you. Um, it's uh, It's... It's been a pleasure to bring the podcast to you throughout this year. Um, we are headed into our next year. We will head into our 11th year of the tennis podcast, David. We've got to not forget our anniversary. I know. I mean, we, we forget we've... all the anniversaries, but we're not forgetting the 10th one. I don't know, though. Maybe we should do the no, one you need to put you need to episode. You need to put an alert in your phone. Like you've done for Carlos Alcaraz winning the French Open in two years' time. You need to put an alert in your phone now about uh, our 10-year anniversary. And our 1,000th episode. And our 1,000th episode. I prefer the symmetry of the the 10-year anniversary. Anyway, that's for next year. That is one thing that is certain in 2022. Uh, We will produce podcasts throughout the year. Thanks to your help and support via friends of the tennis podcast, which has been 
a tremendous success. Um, we're overwhelmed by it. If you've joined already, thank you for being our friend. Thank you for ensuring that this podcast can continue and can continue to grow um, and bring a lot of joy to our lives and hopefully some to yours as well. If you haven't joined already, you still can. It's open-ended. You can join anytime. There is bonus content on there. There's already a bonus podcast um, and there's going to be plenty more to come. So thank you um, if you've already backed and thank you in advance for those that are soon to be friends of the tennis podcast. We still have Rogue, Zeus and Scousel Mousel, our presenter mascots for 2021. They've stuck with us through thick and thin um, and yeah. We've uh, we've loved having them, and Billie Jean has loved having Billie Jean King. Obviously, you would. Um, we've got Chris Albert Lee, our executive producer and all-around top bloke. And this year, no, this week, we have Bella and Izzy, our tennis podcast pet double act, a dog, a German Shepherd, called Bella, and a cat called Izzy, uh, and they're owned by brother and sister Kate and Zach in Wyoming, Ohio. And they are simply a delight, both of them. And though they are not pictured being friends together in any of the, the photos, animals being friends is my favourite thing in the world. And I like to think that they are best friends and snuggle together at night and generally, you know, have a lovely, lovely, lovely friendship. So that is your review of 2021. We'll be back when, David? Oh, in a few days' time, because we've got a couple of listener question specials, final ones of the year, and then they'll be available on Friends of the Tennis Podcast from, from next year. Um, but yeah, we've got a couple of more shows coming your way. Can't wait. Yes. No off-season for us, folks. Maybe squeeze that Maldives holiday <laughs> into a five-day period, David, because there's more podcasting to do. We will speak to you soon. 